just say good morning. He is risen. Let's do that again. He is risen. Hallelujah. That is a, uh, an amazing thing to think about this morning. The title to this morning's message is A Perfect Salvation. And the text is taken from Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. We'll be reading that in a few minutes. Jesus commanded his followers to be perfect. His statement is recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I wonder what your first thought is when a preacher stands up here and says, You must be perfect. And you're probably thinking, you're, You've got to be kidding. The search for perfection continues to be mostly fruitless in a fallen human race. Everything that we come up with or even observe has flaws in it. No perfection to be seen anywhere. None to be found. Everything around us is deteriorating, not getting better. Everything is just getting older. Every person is just getting older and less perfect all the time. I'm aging I understand that. I haven't accepted it yet, but on a physical plane, <laughs> the top was a while back. I'm, I'm headed down the other side. It's, it's sad, but it's true. Never going to get close to perfection, I can see that. Sadly, what can happen is that we can get a little jaded as we get older and cynical in our outlook, we become more skeptical, I think. I found that in my situation about situations and about people. More problems cropping up, more issues coming up, fewer answers, more disappointment. And what can happen is we can get a little depressed. And what can also happen is there is a measure of insecurity that can develop in our lives as we understand that things are just not going perfectly. And we're prone to failure. And that our best efforts are falling short. Seeing more and more that I don't have it in me, by my own expectation, I'm somewhat of a failure. I believe that the answer that has blessed me in this is to change our focus away from ourselves. And that is what I want to do this morning, is to take the focus away from our failure, which we're prone to, and to focus it on Jesus, the perfect Son of God, turning our focus to Christ, seeing Him in His perfection, seeing His marvelous salvation that He has wrought for us. I would like for us to sense how we are accepted by God through the work of Christ in spite of our weakness and our failure. A perfect Savior, a perfect salvation. Hallelujah. Focusing on Him. Focusing on the salvation that He brought. A perfect salvation. I want to tell you a story about a man named John. John was born into a family of 12 children. They were very poor. He was the youngest. He never remembered his father eating a meal with the rest of the family. 
His father had to work long hours to feed his family. One day his father ran off with another woman, leaving his mother to care for all 12 children. At age six, his mother told him through tears that she was going to put him up for adoption, along with three of his sisters. She told him she had no choice. If she didn't take this step, they would likely starve. She placed an ad in a newspaper at a nearby town, and within three days, a couple responded. When the day finally came for John to leave, he said it was the worst day of his life. They were at the train station ready to say their last goodbyes. He said, when the conductor reached down to take me from my mother's arms, I felt something die on the inside of me. His new family was very loving and kind, but it was just not the same. John lived with the constant fear that one day they would give him away too. He grew into adulthood and finally went on out on his own. He spent year after year absorbed in his work trying to bury the deep hurt in his soul. One day something beautiful happened. In a moment of great discouragement, he visited a church, hoping he would hear a word that would boost his spirits. Little did he know that his life would be changed forever. The preacher talked about how God loves to adopt people into his forever family. At the end of the sermon, he asked if anyone would like to join God's family. John raised his hand and then went to the altar. At last, the ache in his heart was healed. Jesus told him he would never abandon him, never send him away. After years of turmoil and hate, John felt loved and accepted. He now had a security he never dreamed possible. He felt the Lord saying to him, John, I know about that day at the train station. I know how you felt, and I've been waiting all these years to adopt you into my family. This morning I want to talk about a perfect salvation and being accepted into God's family. A perfect salvation brought by Jesus. But what does it mean, a perfect, a perfect salvation? What is perfection? What does that mean? I don't know a lot about perfection. I looked it up in a dictionary. That was the first step. And I went to Webster's Dictionary and I looked up what does perfection, what is it? And this is the, the definition that I have. It's the quality or state of being perfect as in freedom from fault or defect. It has to do with flawlessness. It has to do with maturity. It has to do with the quality or state of being saintly. An insurpassable degree of accuracy or excellence. And it is exemplified by supreme excellence as in God and Jesus. I did a little research on the Greek word that we are going to be looking at in Hebrews 10. And what does it mean? And it is uh, teleo, which is to, to complete, to accomplish, to consummate, to make finish, to fulfill, to make perfect. So the sense of perfection that salvation is for us is to complete us to make us as originally intended or designed when we receive a perfect salvation we are restored to a relationship with God that we were designed to be in 
is an idea of fullness. Man who one time lived in the Garden of Eden and knew nothing of sin, but once sin entered the picture, man could never be perfect again in himself or by his own merits. Sin would always be there, crouching at the door, destroying the purity of man and filling our hearts with guilt. No matter how hard we tried, sin is always there and we feel guilty. The passage we're going to be looking at today from Hebrews talks about perfection. It's a rare phenomenon in our fallen world. And I want to focus today, Lord willing, on the person of Jesus Christ in his perfection. We stand so much to gain in our worship when we focus on Christ. I can thoroughly recommend that. As we focus on Christ and his awesomeness, his perfection, we are a little bit like Peter when Jesus performed that miracle on the Sea of Galilee. He came back and he realized that what had just happened, he sensed God's awesome power. And he said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He said, I, I can't take it. You're just, you're just too awesome. You're too amazing. And I think we, when we see God, we see Jesus in his perfection, we are awed, we are humbled, and we are blessed. And we are so, so grateful. I want to look at our text now. It is taken from Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. And I'd like for us to stand as I read this text. Text, Hebrews is 10, 1 to 18. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you have a similar version like King James or those, it would be easy to follow, I think. English Standard Version, Hebrews 10, begin verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow... Before I read this, I'd like for you to think of perfect. Think of the word perfect as we go through here. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Before you sit down, verse 14 once more. This is the theme verse of the message this morning. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You may sit down. What, make Je- what makes Jesus' sacrifice perfect? I want to ma- take a couple of points, from, five points to be exact, from this passage on what makes Jesus' sacrifice perfect. And as most of you know, the book of Hebrews is a comparison. The book it compares the Old Testament sacrifices with Jesus' sacrifice. And that's what we'll start out with doing. The first one, it is a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifices of animals. Jesus stood once to sacrifice. Actually, he didn't stand. He hung there because he was both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. He gave himself, and it was a better sacrifice. The sacrifices under the old covenant were an imperfect shadow of what Christ would accomplish. I read, I understand that in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they would sacrifice so many animals in Jerusalem. Someone estimated 100,000 lambs were killed on on Yom Kippur. 100,000 lambs. 100,000. There was the sounds of animals crying out, the smell of the burning flesh on the coals, and the blood that ran so thick through special channels out of the city that it turned the brook of Kidron red from the blood. This was the animal sacrifices. Many, many thousands of gallons of blood. Jesus' sacrifice, by contrast, is a better sacrifice. Secondly, it's a substantial sacrifice. It is not a shadow. A text that we just read said that, that the sacrifice of, the old, of those animals in the Old Testament was just a shadow of the real thing. And when you look at a shadow, you see a vague outline of a real substantial thing and there and you see the light behind it and that is a good analogy a good type of what those sacrifices were they were temporary they were fleeting and they were would be done away with highly imperfect pointing ahead to the perfect sacrifice of Christ that he would accomplish in the fullness of time the hebrew writer here is contrasting the old testament practice he is quoting psalm 40 from the Greek Old Testament translation called the Septuagint. And he tells us that this, in fact, is a more substantial sacrifice. There's a story about a, an old English chapel in an English village. And they had an, it had an arch in the entryway, I believe, of the chapel. And there was ivy growing up on the arch, starting at either end, I suppose. And on that arch, they had a message written. It said, we preach Christ crucified. 
For years, the church loudly proclaimed that Jesus alone was Savior of the world. But as generations passed, a generation grew up that considered the message of the cross as old news and repulsive. They began to preach salvation, that salvation came by following Christ's example of a good life, not by his blood. Ivy began to creep up the arch in front of the church until it covered the word crucified. The chapel continued its ministry under the banner, We Preach Christ. Then the church decided after a number of years that its message did not need to be confined to Christ and the Bible, so messages were proclaimed that included social issues and politics and philosophy and anything else that seemed to spark the interest of a bored congregation. Soon the ivy on the archway spread covering the words, so only the phrase remained, We Preach. Number three, it's a voluntary sacrifice. It was a voluntary sacrifice that Christ accomplished. If you have your Bibles open and you could follow along, I want to read verses 5 to 9 of our text. Hebrews 10, verse 5 to 9 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus voluntarily came to sacrifice his body on the cross. And I don't know if you know that the incarnation happened primarily for that reason. Jesus needed a body to sacrifice. And he was given that body in order to sacrifice that earthly body for our salvation. He used that incarnated body. Number four, it's an adequate sacrifice. What makes Jesus' sacrifice perfect? It's being adequate. My uh, aunts and uncles had a singing group a while while back, and they, they used to sing that song. There was one drop shed just for me on Calvary. I thought that was kind of a neat concept. I'm not sure if that's true. But I I am here to tell you that the sacrifice of Jesus is adequate in that the blood that was shed is enough for you. And it's enough for me. And it's enough for everybody that you share the gospel with. It's enough. It's adequate. It's there. There is plenty. If the whole world would believe in Christ the whole world would have come to Christ. That blood is adequate for that. It was provided an adequate salvation. Number five, it is an atoning sacrifice. The sacrifice atones for my sin. Nothing else could. It atones for my sin and for yours. The blood of Jesus does that. No works of righteousness that I can do will atone for my sin, only the sacrifice of Christ. I don't know how many of you may have studied or read about Charles Wesley in his life. Charles Wesley was a Christian leader in England, and he engaged in preaching, singing. He was a songwriter. Charles Wesley began his preaching ministry before he understood salvation. 
He was very diligent in preaching and teaching. It wasn't until he was 30 years old one day and he was laying very, very sick on a bed that he learned what salvation really is. There was a young Moravian student of his there. His name was Peter Bowler. And he was undergoing a course of preparation to go out as a, minister, as a missionary. And he observed, obviously, something in Charles Wesley's life. That Charles Wesley didn't understand salvation. And you'd think, having been exposed to all that teaching, that he would have understood it. And would, you would think that each one of us here today understands salvation. But I'm afraid there are some that need to hear this message this morning and don't understand salvation. Charles Wesley was asked the question by this young Moravian man. He says, do you hope to be saved? This Peter Bowler asked him. He said, yes, I do. For what reason do you hope it? Because I have used my best endeavors to serve God. The Moravian shook his head and said no more. That sad, silent, significant and shake of the head shattered all of Charles Wesley's false foundation of salvation by endeavors. He was afterwards taught by Peter Bowler the way of the Lord more perfectly and brought to see that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ men are justified. And now in his sick room he was able to write for the first time in his life, I now find myself at peace with God. And it was on this occasion he composed that beautiful hymn, Oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We're familiar with that hymn, but did you know that it has 19 stanzas? We sing probably three or four, and I'm going to read for you a number, then maybe 19 if I feel like I can. He says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice. New life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. I think I will stop there. But it just, it just stands after stanza. And you can see from that hymn that Charles Wesley understood salvation. He really understood it. What an occasion for worship and praise when I really see the atoning sacrifice of Christ that has taken away my sin in the eyes of God. It's perfect. The salvation that is accomplished on Calvary is perfect. You can't add to it. That salvation is complete and it's perfect. That's a concept I want to get across this morning. We sometimes want to somehow earn some of that or add to it in some way. It is complete. The cross of Christ and that sacrifice is complete and perfect. There's nothing that we can add to that to make that more complete. What does the sacrifice mean for me, that perfect sacrifice? Number one, the removal of my guilt. Our text, verse 1, Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, For since the law 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the law, true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. The removal of my guilt. I think Satan often comes back and says, you're guilty, you're an awful sinner, and we can come under guilt, not, really, not understanding, not fully claiming that our sin is, has been taken away. Number two, it brings pardon. It brings pardon for our sin. Pardon is, according to Webster's Dictionary, is the excusing of an offense without exacting a penalty. A release from the legal penalties of an offense, an official warrant of remission of penalty. Charles Stanley shares about the concept of grace. He says, one of my memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. The end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam with the caution to read it all the way through before beginning to answer it. This caution was written on the exam as well. As we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to us that we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, audible groans could be heard throughout the lecture hall. On the last page, however, there was a note that read, You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom, and in so doing, receive an A for this assignment. Wow, we sat there stunned. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? Slowly the point dawned on us, and one by one we turned in our tests and silently filed out of the room. When I talked with the professor about it afterwards, he shared some of the reactions he had received through the years. Some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class time before reaching that last page. Others read the first two pages, became angry, turned the test in blank, and stormed out of the room without signing it. They never realized what was available, and as a result, they lost out totally. One fellow, however, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyway. He did not want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He got a C+. Pardon, free and full. Number three, the removal of God's remembrance of my sin. This stretches my faith. This stretches my faith, but the scripture says here that the, in verse 16 of our text, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God doesn't remember our sin. He has taken them and removed them as far as the east is from the west. Number four is security. I'm secure in my relationship with God. He'll never turn me away, never. The young man that I read about, John, struggled with security in his life. 
I think there's some of us who struggle with security in our salvation. I understand that. I have struggled with that. And I am here to tell you that from God's point, we don't have to. We don't have to struggle with insecurity. More on that. He'll never turn me away, never. So many things go wrong in life, so many losses that I experience, so many reversals, but my terrible sin is taken care out, care of. If I lose, lose out spiritually, it's because I have turned my back on God. It is not that he has rejected me. It is because of rebellion on my part, not because of rejection on God's part. A bit more on that. Jesus sat down. I don't know how many of you noticed that in our text, but Jesus sat down. And that is, I think, hugely significant in this text. Verses 11 to 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time his single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I think that is significant more than just the posture that he assumed. We can read other times in Hebrews, and for the sake of time I won't read them, but he sat down. He, no longer, he is not standing, he sat down. What does that mean? A couple of pointers. One is that Christ's work of atonement is done. It's complete. He finished that work on the cross. It's, it's, it's done. Day after day, the priests would have to come back and offer more sacrifices. Christ's work of atonement is done. He'll never have to go through that again. Number two, God is satisfied with the sacrifice. It completed all of God's requirements. And Jesus came back into glory after he rose from the dead. He came back and he sat down. And we're visual people. I don't know how it is in heaven, but visually, the way we would understand it, there's God sitting on the throne and Jesus sitting down. And he's, God is satisfied. Number three, he is grant, God, Jesus is granted sovereignty with his Father because of what he accomplished on Calvary. Philippians 2 says that. God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And number four, my salvation is complete and effective. It's accomplished. That's a concept that I want to leave with us this morning is that thy salvation is complete. It is perfect. I want to segue a little bit as I was meditating on this message the last few days. I... I was running down on a treadmill and I, it all of a sudden it hit me, you need to talk about faith in this message. And I want to, it's, it's a segue and it's not. But the message of salvation, Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The two major components that are listed here in salvation is grace, God's grace, 
and our faith. Faith is necessary for salvation. You can't, you can't be saved unless you believe. There would be those who teach universal salvation because the blood of Jesus was adequate for the whole human race, that that blood was adequate, that he shed and redeemed the whole race. That's true. It is adequate. But the scriptures are very clear that we must believe. We must believe in order to be saved. We must believe. We must have faith in the completed work of Christ. And before I go on, I want to throw in a little something else. And I think this is where the breakdown happens and why I believe. And some of you are going to argue with me why I believe that you can still lose your salvation. is because you lose your faith. Not that the grace isn't there. Not that the, the God is not able to keep you. God is there. He wants to keep you. But when we turn our back on God, we lose our faith. It happened. It's happening all around us. Take heed, brethren, the Hebrew writer says, that there, brethren, he's talking to Christians, that there be not in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in turning from the living God. That's an awesome thing. Not to inspire insecurity in your hearts, not at all. You are secure. Your salvation is complete if you have been saved but we, salvation is a relationship where I, my faith continues to reach out to God and I keep, I keep a relationship with God. And God is just there for me. But I can turn my back, I believe, on God. And it's happening all around me. What is faith? Very, very quickly, I don't have time this morning to, to spend time with this, but R.C. Sproul lists three levels of faith. And this is very helpful to me in my understanding of what faith is. The first one is the Latin word notitia, which means knowledge. Faith begins with knowledge. And that's why we preach to the heathens. That's why we share the gospel with our friends, is to give them knowledge. We can't, that type of, that level of faith is not saving faith. The knowledge is not saving faith. It doesn't save them. The knowledge that Christ died. The knowledge that I'm a sinner. This does not save you. But it is absolutely necessary. It can't, you cannot get faith without that knowledge. So that's why we share the gospel. Number two is a census. The, the Latin word a census, which means intellectual assent to the truth that we know. You read in your history books that George Washington crossed the Delaware River. And you say, well, that, I'm pretty sure that's correct. The historians have got that right. I lend assent to that. The demons lend assent to the fact that they're going to be condemned. They believe and they tremble. But they're not saved. The third level of faith is represented by the, the Latin word fiducia, which is personal trust and reliance. And I want to use the, the picture that I've been given. It's not original with me of, 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 a, box, of, a, of a, a container of penicillin. We've been told what a great drug this is. This, this penicillin is, is the greatest thing. I mean, it's not that way probably anymore, but it was when it came out. It was considered to be the, the greatest thing in the world. Penicillin. It actually can help kill infection. 
We can read all about it. We can do our research. We know about penicillin. We know who discovered it. And we know all about it. And we know that. But until I pop the lid on that bottle and put that pill in my mouth, it's not going to do me any good when I have that infection. Sitting on the shelf there, it's not going to do me any good. And that to me is one of the best word pictures that I can get of true faith, saving faith, is when I cast myself on God. It's a, it's a commitment that I make to, to God to cast myself on him and I say, I'm taking this pill. I'm not standing there watching it. I'm not thinking about it. I am literally trusting my very life and my existence to Christ. And that is, in fact, saving faith. And I don't have time this morning to get into, you know, where does this come from? Where does this faith come from? It's a very complicated answer to that question. But I know that it comes through hearing and it comes through making more uh, mental assent to the truth. And then it comes uh, me taking action and throwing myself on God. That is saving faith. I want to make application this morning. Sanctification is a work in progress. And I want to look at verse 14 of our text. When I discovered that verse in my studies, I am thrilled by that verse. That verse is so potent. That verse is just full of good stuff. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. My salvation is perfect. It's a completed deal. It's a done deal. My, so, my sin is atoned for. When Christ shed his blood on Calvary, when I accept that by faith, I throw myself on his atonement, I'm saved. I am perfect. No, Sam, you're not. Yeah, I am. My salvation is perfect. Don't, don't argue with me. My salvation is complete. It's perfect in Christ. There are no flaws in that salvation. Why? Because Jesus accomplished that perfect sacrifice for my sin. And it's perfect. My salvation is perfect. There is an aspect that, I've, that the Hebrew writer quickly puts in there with that as to perfection. And that is that our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ, is an ongoing process throughout our lives. Yes, our salvation is perfect, but our sanctification is ongoing. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And if you look, if you study that verse very, very carefully, the verb tenses are exactly as portrayed here in the English Standard Version. One is past tense, it is perfect. The other one is a present ongoing tense. We are being sanctified. It's an ongoing process. Our submitting to his working in our lives, allowing him to chip away at the issues in my life, allowing him to take care of the, 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 the things that I need to have taken care of. And I, I, 
they're going to bury me if it's in this place or not. I don't know. But they're going to bury me, and it's still going to be ongoing. It's still going to be going, going. And Sam is going to be as imperfect almost as he always has. But he is going to be worked on. And the same is true for each one of you that believe in Christ. He's going to work on us. I'm going to do a somewhat unconventional closing to the message. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Once again, I invite you to. And I want to, to give context to the, to the passage that we preached about this morning by reading the rest of the chapter. The writer to the Hebrews is, is very, very concerned about his readers. And he adds a, a very good perspective on the perfection of his salvation by what he says at the end. And I won't comment a lot, if, if any, on this as we com- conclude the message by reading this passage. Hebrews 10, begin reading at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, when his flesh was rent on Calvary, that made the way for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a flurry in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be reserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and and the one coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's that turning away that I was mentioning of, of our faith, turning away from the one in which our faith should be placed. But we are not of those who shrink back, verse 39, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I'd like to yet read verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God bless you.